The following audio is from Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in becoming a part of our extended family, visit MidtownColumbia.com slash partner. I haven't had the chance of meeting you. I'm Aunt, uh, Pastor here at uh, Midtown Too Notch. Very glad you're worshiping uh, with us today. I see a lot of visitors. Just want to extend a special welcome to you, let you know we're very glad you are uh, welcoming here. and would love for you to uh, hang around with our church family as much as you uh, will be willing to do so. We just count it a privilege for you to be uh, here with us. Uh, today, if you would, uh, if you have, we don't, uh, we normally have Bibles in the seats. We haven't, we don't have them out today. If you can go ahead, if you want to use your phone, you can go ahead and go to jo- Joshua chapter three. Excuse me, Joshua chapter three. We'll be starting at verse fourteen today. Again, Joshua three, starting at verse fourteen. We're going to entitle what we're doing today a memorial of His faithfulness. If you'd like to take notes, a, a memorial of His faithfulness. It's an amazing thing. I literally, this was about a month, month and a half, maybe two months ago. I was sitting down with another pastor. Some of you already know this story. And we were, we were just mapping out what are some long-term goals, some things that we would love to see God do in Midtown Two Notch through uh, Midtown Two Notch long-term. He was asking me questions like, so this is a, a pastor who's been pastoring for um, maybe about twice as long as I have. So he's just helping me think through the future stuff. What, where do you want the church to be in 10 years? Where do you want the church to be uh, in 20 years? And we're kind of backtracking. And, and he was asking, well, what do we need to do now in order to be where you want to be in 15 years, 20 years down the road to do uh, what you believe God is calling uh, you to do. And so that was on a, that was on a Wednesday uh, afternoon when he was asking me those questions. And so we got on the whiteboard, drew up a lot of different things. And uh, number one on the whiteboard uh, was uh, we're going to need to find a new, a new place to meet just for a lot of what God is calling us to do, not just in the Piners neighborhood, but uh, along inner city two notch in general. I was like, we, we, we're going to need a new, uh, a new place to meet. The next day, I got an email from our landlord where we were meeting saying, I need to talk to you and your leadership team. Uh, went in on, so, that, so I talked to the pastor on Wednesday. We set that as a goal. On Thursday, I got the email. On Monday, the leadership team met with uh, one, one of their pastors, and he said, hey, we're selling the building. You guys got to be out in 30 days. And it was like, yep, <laughs> exactly. God has always provided for, for us as a church, and it, it, it was very clear that this was something that, that, that God is doing. So I want us to be very um, very, very careful about how we understand this time of transition uh, that we're in, that we understand that it is uh, actually a, a move of God in the hand of God on our church, uh, and thus we should seek to take advantage of everything that this new location uh, will give us. But uh, on top of that, I want to I make sure we, uh, again, can be intentional about understanding uh, God's faithfulness the way, the way that we should. Joshua chapter 3, again, starting at verse 14. Give you a little context. This is a part of the Bible where uh, God is transitioning his people. His people at first were enslaved in Egypt. They were, they, they were oppressed physically and spiritually. They were oppressed physically as they had to, to manually work under extremely harsh conditions, under very harsh, harsh taskmasters as they worked for the Egyptians. The Egyptians were afraid that they were going to rise up and start this rebellion against them. So the Egyptians just enslaved them as ruthlessly and as hard as they possibly could. But they were also oppressed spiritually because they were forced to worship Egypt's false god. So Pharaoh in and of himself, the king of Egypt, was worshipped as a false god. And they had all these other gods as well. And so God, uh, if you're familiar with the story, he sends uh, the plagues through his servant Moses. And he, and he tells Pharaoh, obviously, let my people go. 
Uh, what, you, what you might not be uh, extremely familiar with is generally um, when you hear that, let my people go, that phrase, it generally stops there. But if you actually read through it, it's, he generally says, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they might worship me. So God was freeing his people to actually be able to worship him the way that he desired for them to, but they couldn't because they were enslaved right there in Egypt. So hopefully you've heard the story before. I don't have time to go into all of it. But God frees them with these powerful signs, these plagues, if you would, that he sends to uh, the Egyptians. And finally, he just, he just crushes Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh is no longer able to fight, so he, he lets his people go. There's the, there's the Red Sea that's in the way, right? So they, they, get, out of, they get out of Egypt on, on, on this quest to the promised land, a plan that they hadn't seen, but their forefathers had seen. They just heard about some land that God was going to send his people to. So now they, they're leaving Egypt, they're, they're on the way, and right in the way is, is the Red Sea. Right, the Red Sea is right there, and, and, and at this point, Egypt, uh, the King Pharaoh and his army is chasing after the people of God, God's people, the, the Israelites. So God actually, obviously, uh, he parts the waters in the Red Sea. God's people go forward on dry land. God closes up the Red Sea. God has, has saved his people, but they're still in this transition point because they're not quite where they're supposed to be yet. Right, so they're in the wilderness, but they're not where they're supposed to be. They're not in the promised land yet, the, the land that he had promised to their forefathers literally centuries ahead of time, ahead of them. So eventually they get up to the Jordan River. The Jordan River is this, is this natural land barrier between uh, the promised land and the land that they were wandering around in or the land that, that God was leading them through. The Jordan River, so oftentimes when God talks about the promised land in the Old Testament, he refers to it to, to as the land on the other side of the Jordan or the land west of the Jordan. So that's, that's, where, the, that's where the promised land was. So they, they get right up to it, and the first time they get there, they send a few spies over. To, to, to just check and see what, what, the, what is the land like. And they go and they, they find some giants. They get afraid and they doubt God. And ultimately God says, okay, you're going to wander for 40 years in this desert. And you're not going to go in because you didn't, you didn't trust me. I had already delivered you out of Egypt. Right? You had already seen my strength. You seen my power. You seen my love. He had already descended on Mount Sinai to let them know that he was there with them. He had established his covenant with them already. He had already told them, you go over there. I'm just going to give it to you. He said, you go and I will give it to you. And they sent some spies over and the spies were like, those dudes are big, bro. Like, I don't think we're going to be able to pull this off. And they doubt God. And so God says, okay, since you doubt it, you will wander in this wilderness for 40 years. And none of, you, and none of those who were adults at that time, even Moses himself, made it into the promised land. So God raises up this new leader named Joshua. Joshua was Moses' aide, right? So it was like Moses' right-hand man. He was, he was with Moses. He had led God's people before under the leadership of Moses. And so this time, is 40 years has passed. They're ready to go and take the land. This is the land that they had been promised so many years ago. This is the land that they had been wandering around for 40 years, couldn't wait to get into. That sets us up for where we are right now. Verse 14, Joshua has already rallied the troops. They're ready to go into the land. They have the priests that are holding the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was, was God's symbol reminding them that my presence is with you, that I will go with you. Verse 14, chapter 3. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now, the Jordan overflows all its banks through, throughout the time of harvest. So it's saying this was the harvest time. So it's not like there was a small amount of water in the Jordan at this time. At this point in time in the year, the Jordan is overflowing its banks. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city, it is beside Zarathon, 
and those flowing down toward the sea of the Araba, Araba, the salt sea, uh, excuse me, were completely cut off. So this is different from the Red Sea. So when they parted, when they crossed in the Red Sea, it's kind of like the water's just sitting still. God parts the waters like this so they can walk through on dry ground. The Jordan River moves, right? So it's, a, so it's a difference between a river and a sea. A river moves. So what happened this time, as soon as the, the priest's feet hit the water, the water just started to stand up in a heap over here. So the, the, the flow just completely stopped off. So if you're, if you're in the promise at this time, the, the nations that were there, that God was about to drive out so that God's people would be there, Everybody knows what's, what's going on right now, right? Especially if you're familiar with the story of Rahab, when, when they send the spies into Jericho this time, uh, Rahab is like, oh, no, we've already heard about you guys. Like, our, our spirit has left us because we're so terrified because we know how God brought you out of Egypt. So, and this is just another, another sign that God stopped the river and the water just went straight up. And so there's dry ground in the Jordan where the, where the people of God are walking through. Verse 4, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua. So before we get into what, what God says to Joshua, because it's very important. It's something I think we need to make sure we understand. You've got to understand the moment that they're in right now. Right? This, this, this is everything they've been dreaming of for years. This is what their ancestors have been dreaming of for years. Right? So God, so God had got his people through the Jordan. What is God going to say first to them? Right? There was this one last hurdle they had to get, they had to, get to, to to reap the promises that God had given to them over, I mean, hundreds of years ago. What is the first thing you think God says to them? Let's start in verse 2. Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down on the place where you lodge tonight. If I'm Joshua at this time, we just got over. Everybody has gone through, except for the priests that are there in the middle of the Jordan, just standing there as, as, as symbolic of God's presence being with them. And the reason that they're actually able to cross over the Jordan, if I'm Joshua now, I'm thinking it's, all right, here's the game plan. Here's how we're going to do it. Jericho's right here. Here's how we're going to attack against Jericho and drive them out. That's not what God says. Everybody had passed through. God tells Joshua, get 12 men and send them back in. Get a man from each tribe. So this is going to take a little bit of time, right? So this is thousands of people that have crossed over the Jordan already. So he says, stop, retrack your steps, go backwards, send a person from each tribe back into the Jordan. He's going to tell us why. This is mind-blowing to me. I'm thinking everything now is like, no, we've moved forward. We've already passed the Jordan. Why are we going back into the Jordan when you've already led us through it? Verse 5. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan. Go back in and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder regarding the number of tribes of the people of Israel. Go back to where the priests are standing. Pick up stones from around their feet. One man from each tribe, one stone representative of each tribe. Grab it and bring it out of the Jordan. Why would he do this? Why would he take the time to slow them down. This is, this is like the height of their lives, I would say, as they're reaching the promises that God had made to them hundreds of years. Verse 6, here's why. That this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
Verse 8, and the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told, told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests before the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. He says, this, this monument, this memorial that they create with the stones that literally came out of the heart of the Jordan. He said that two things about it. They're going to be a sign to you and they're going to be a memorial to you. If you know what a sign is, a sign is always something that's supposed to point to something else, right? A sign is only good if it directs your attention to something greater than itself. He's saying these, these stones that are here, they're to be a sign to you about what God did for us. He also said they're to be a memorial a memorial is something that allows you to continue to remember something, right? We have a tendency to, to forget things in our lives, things the Lord has done. A memorial is something that is set up to let, uh, to let memory live on. It, it is to cause you to be able to continue to keep your eyes on something and not forget what has happened. He said it is to be a memorial to you. Let they remind you, let these stones that came out of the heart of joy, let them remind you what I have done for you. Verse 17, so Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. So the priests leave, the water starts flowing again. Verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Verse 22, then you shall let your children know. He's saying this is not just be a memorial to you, but for generations to come. Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until... We passed over. Here's the reason. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is a sign, but it's not just to you. This is a sign to you. This is a sign to the generation after you. This is a sign to people that you've never met before. This is a sign to all of the nations that the Lord your God is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. I don't know about you. I'm often very quick to have God do something for me. Maybe something that I've been praying for for months. Maybe something I've been praying for for years. God answers that prayer, and I'm on to the next thing already. In ministry, when you're in full-time ministry, you have these goals. You have these things that you want to see God do over and over again. And you have these, this list of things that you're, that you're praying for. And it's like once God answers, it's like, check, I, I haven't stopped to thank God. I haven't stopped to praise God for I haven't done anything to help me remember this going forward. I'm already on to the next thing. I'm already, okay, what's the next goal? What, what's the next thing that we are trying to accomplish here? Memorials empower us to remember God is setting up this memorial because he's not allowing his people to do what I have a tendency to do so often. He's not allowing them to just, to just move on. Matter of fact, he says, matter of fact, go back in. Go get those stones. Bring them out. Retrace your, retrace your steps. Re remember this. Set this up so that this will never leave your mind. Set this up so that your children will know. I want to make it in such a way that when your children see it, they're going to ask a question. So you have to answer them and proclaim my goodness to them. 
God says, no, you, you need to take a second. And remembering is a very powerful thing. And remembering the faithfulness of God is a very, very powerful thing. If you don't believe that, I, I, I want to let you kind of bring you in on what Satan's primary plan is. His primary goal is to deceive the world from believing that God is everything that he says that he is. His primary goal is deception. I'll tell you why I say it. We won't have it on the screen. I'll go through it really quickly. John chapter 8, 44, Jesus talking about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is saying this is what he does. This is his MO from the very beginning. The very first thing we see him doing is lying in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. He is a liar. His game is deception, and thus remembering what is true about God is essential if we're to live as God calls us to live, because Satan's primary means of attacking us is deception. It's getting us to believe things that aren't true. Another scripture, we won't have it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, I'll just read it. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So Paul is talking about spiritual warfare, and he says, we're not fighting against the flesh. The weapons that we use have divine power to destroy strongholds. Check out what he says the weapons are or how we fight. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He says the way that we fight. He, he defines spiritual warfare as destroying arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of our Lord. He's saying we fight with the truth against the lies. Any opinion, any argument that goes against what God has already revealed, we, we, we engage in spiritual warfare when we destroy those arguments. Anytime the enemy comes to us and tries to tell us something that is not true about God, spiritual warfare is combating those non-truths with, oh sorry, combating those lies with the truth. We need to be able to remember what is true about God. It's a powerful thing. It is our weapon against the enemy, his truth that we are so prone often to forget. Adam and Eve didn't need a new word from God in the garden. They needed to remember the word they already heard. Adam and Eve did not need a new word. They didn't need a new revelation. They didn't need God to come in and teach them something that they did not already know. They needed to remember and apply what God had already taught them. They needed to remember. Remembering is powerful. The enemy wants us to forget what we already know. So many, I hear, I've heard many, many Christians before just to say, I need, I need a word from God. Like, I need a word from God. And I'm like, are you practicing what you already know? Are you remembering what you have already been taught? Growth in Christianity is not an accumulation of facts about God. Right, right. We live what he has already taught us. We live it out. We press it as deep into our hearts as we can. And we remember it for the rest of our lives. And we live out what is already true about God because we are prone to forget. I think we have a, 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 this over, like this elevation, so to speak, of just gaining facts about God, gaining new information about God. And don't get me wrong, that's cool, that's great to do. We do need to learn more and more about who God is, but are we remembering? Are we remembering? The sin that led to the corruption in all of this world is a lack of remembering what God has said. Are we remembering the truth that he has already given us? Are we taking the time to make sure, okay, when God demonstrates his faithfulness to me, how am I going to make sure I remember this? 
I'm sure that the enemy will want me to forget and get me to believe things that aren't true about God, things that aren't true about myself, about what God is doing. Are we remembering what God has already told us? We must remember. Our biggest problem is for most of us is not that we lack facts about God. It's an inability or refusal to remember what we already know. This is a problem that we have, but it's not just our problem. It's a problem that the, that the children of Israel had in the Old Testament. Uh, many, many of you in here could probably quote uh, the verse when, when Joshua says, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, but for, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to just read to you. Again, we won't have it on the screen. I want to just read to you what comes right before that. And I want you to notice what Joshua is doing right before he gives that encouragement to the people of God. Just, just, just listen to what, what, how is Joshua trying to get the people of God to actually follow him. I'm just going to read Joshua 24, start at verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. They presented themselves before God. So what we first read in Joshua, Joshua was just getting into the promised land, crossing the Jordan. At the end of the book, what I'm reading from right now, they've already taken over the, the, the promised land. They, they have set, they've even distributed, okay, the, the, the tribe of Benjamin, you're going to be over here. Right, the tribe of Judah, you're going to be over here. They already distributed the land with where they're going to stand. And so Joshua has this one last time with his leaders and with the people of God, because at the end of this book, Joshua dies and the next leader is going to come up. So Joshua's got this, this one last speech to the people of God. So he gathers everybody together, everybody from their homes comes to hear what Joshua has to say. He's been their leader. He's been their guide. He's been the one that God has been speaking through as he's been communicating to them. And Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served the other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. They already know this story, by the way. They already know this story. They already know Abraham is one of their forefathers. They are very familiar with everything that Joshua was saying. Verse, verse 4, and to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. He's telling them how they got to Egypt. They're very familiar with how they got to Egypt. Verse 6, and then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers and chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did to Egypt. He said, you saw what I did to Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordans. Right. So this is right before they go into the promised land. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Havites and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant, he says. Now, therefore, that's 13 verses of a history lesson they already knew. 
13 verses of I did this for you, and then I did this for you, and then I did this for you, and then I did this, and then I saved you from these people, and then I got you to the water, and when they chased you, I put darkness in between you and them so they couldn't get you. Then I parted the sea, you walked across on dry ground, then the Amorites stood up against you, and I defeated them, then you crossed the Jordan, and then we defeated all of these people, and now you're living in a place you didn't even plant. You're getting grapes from a vineyard that you didn't even plant. You're drinking wine that you had nothing to do with. He says, I got you here. Verse 15, and, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua says. This is Joshua's last chance to all the people whom he has led, whom he has shepherded, whom he has attached to in, in, in so many ways. And he tells, them, he tells them nothing that they don't already know. Everything he told them, they already were aware of. Joshua values remembering. Do we value remembering in the same way? Are we dedicated to remembering what God has taught us? One of the things that I learned about, uh, that I remember reading in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 12. You can go and turn there if you want to or scroll there on your phones if you want to. Uh, Peter says one of the more interesting scriptures that make this point that I think I've ever, I've ever seen. Uh, Peter obviously was one who walked with Jesus, right? So Peter's got all the stories. Peter's got stories that you and I have, have never heard of. Hopefully we'll hear about one day in heaven. Peter's got all the stories Check out how Peter encourages the people of God in the last known letter that we know from him. 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll read verse 12 and 13. So this is Peter writing near the end of his life as well. These are some of his last words to the people of God who are, under, who are, who are uh, dealing with some type of persecution at the time. 2 Peter 1, starting at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right. Hear this. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by reminder, Peter says. I'll read verse 12 again, at least the beginning of it. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. He says in verse 13, as long as I have life, as long as I am in this body, as long as there are breath in my lungs, as long as I have strength, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. He says in verse 12, these are things that they already know. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you already have. He says, you know it, you're already establishing it. But guess what? As long as I'm alive, I'm just going to remind you of the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm not going to stop until God takes me home to be with him. There are so many Christians, believers, who determine whether or not they feel fed by a sermon based on whether or not they learn something new. Peter ain't concerned about that. Peter is not concerned about your itch to, to learn new things or this, 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 this overemphasis on learning new things. He says, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. The things you already know, the things you're already established. And there's this, there's this belief in Christianity today. I, I call it this, uh, this, this overemphasis, this overinterest in, in learning new things. That, that every time you got to hear something deep, you got to hear something, something new. Right, so like some, some, some new revelation that's like, oh, okay, this is, now this is what I need to focus on. I feel like we follow the trends of our society. Or we're in a society where now there's a new trend every day. There's a new trend every week. There's a new interest that everybody is, is running after. 
Wait till Drake drop another song. Right? There's, there's, a, there's always this desire to go at something new, to, to look for something new, to cling to something new. Like, this is what I'm on right now. And as soon as the news pumps something else different, as soon as social media pumps something else that's different, then we're going to be on to the next thing. We're always chasing this next thing, this new thing, and it's hindering us spiritually because the Bible over and over is saying, no, remember what you already know. Practice that. H- have you remembered the things that you have already been taught? Remember. Peter is not concerned about this, this desire for them to learn something new. Sometimes you just need to be reminded of his goodness. I know you know that God is good. I know you've heard that over and over again. God is good. And all the time. We've heard it over every, we've heard it over and over and over again. But we still need to be reminded of it. Because you're gonna have times in your life where you're like, ah, is God really looking out for me right now? This didn't go the way that I thought it was going to go. Is God still with me right now? Does God still have my best interests at heart? Because I would have never decided that, that my life would go this way. I would have never p- pictured myself in the situation that I'm currently in. Is God still good? And we need to be reminded over and over and over and over and over of his goodness. If Peter's going to say, as long as I am in this life and as long as I have strength in my body, I'm going to continue to remind you then we need to understand that as long as we're alive and as long as we have strength in our bodies, that we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded every day of our lives of what we always know to be true. Sometimes we need to be reminded of his love, of his love, that he wants good for us. I ultimately believe that's what Adam and Eve forgot to remember in the garden. I believe it's what they forgot. The serpent comes in and it's like, well, really, if you do this, God just knows you're going to be like him. Like He really just holding out on you. He knows things will actually be better for you if you eat this, so you might as well go ahead and do it. What's he questioning? God's love. God's not looking out for your good. God doesn't really love you. If he really loved you, he'd let you have this, but he's holding out on you, so you might as well listen to me. We need to be reminded of his love in times of suffering, in times that are difficult, in times that are challenging. In times when we're crying ourselves to sleep. In times when maybe, maybe because of our sin, maybe because of things we've done wrong, we don't, we don't really feel like we can go to God, right? Like we, feel, we feel like we've messed up too much. We feel too guilty to pray. We need to be reminded of his forgiveness for us. We need to be reminded that he, that he washes us clean, right? That though, that though our sins are as scarlet, he washes us white as snow, that he clothes us in robes of righteousness. We need to be able to remember this every day of our lives so we can do, as First John says, that we can go before the throne of God with confidence by remembering his forgiveness, by remembering what he has done for us. We need to remember his grace, that his salvation that he's given to us is a gift. I always say, we don't know what a gift is, because at Christmas time, we give something to people, and we're upset if they don't give something back. Or they give something to us, and now we feel like we got to give something equal back to them. That's a trade. It's not a gift. Like, we, don't, we, don't know what, we don't even know what gifts are. We don't know what, what grace is. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 describes our salvation as a gift because of God's grace. That he just gives it to us because he loves us. That we can't do anything to earn his favor anymore. That we can't do anything to make him like us anymore because he loves us and likes us the way he loves and likes his perfect son, Jesus. We need to be reminded of this. Otherwise, you'll feel like God smiles on you more on some days than he does on other days. You'll be walking around with this insecurity in your relationship with the Lord because you forgot that the righteousness that you stand before God with is not your own, but it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need to remember We need to remember these things. We need to remind ourselves of these truths that we've already heard. 
We need to be reminded of his compassion. Compassion and mercy in the Bible are, are, are actually referred to God's, uh, God's ability to, to not only relate to us, but, but hurt with us as we hurt. That, that as, as, as we suffer, he suffers. Right before, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus' sister comes and says, Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus do? He weeps right there with her. Jesus knows the end. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows what's about to happen. He knows that, that, her, that her tears of mourning are about to be turned into tears of joy, but because he is so connected with the feelings of his people and the sufferings of his people that he weeps right there with her, knowing that Lazarus is going to be okay. Because he's a compassionate God. And in times of mourning and grief for us, in times of pain that we experience, in times of difficulty, we need to remember that we have a God who not only is going to one day make everything right and take all of our suffering away, but we have a God who relates to us in our pain. We have a God who has suffered more than we have suffered as he died on the cross in our place. We need to remember our God is near and he is compassionate. We need to be reminded of these things. We need to be reminded of his provision. We need to be reminded that from the very beginning of our lives, I should say even before we were ever born, he had every one of our hours, all of our moments, all of our days already mapped out, that he has provided everything that we've ever received has come directly from his hand, intentionally from him. We need to remember that he is our provider, that he is our source, because you might lose your job one day. And if you don't remember who your provider is, you might be crippled by fear and anxiety and worrying. You might be crippled by it. You might be debilitated by it. If you lost your job today, if you got a phone call today and heard that you lost your job, would fear take over you? Will you remember that he's our provider? Will you remember? The reality is the situations that we find ourselves in, often we listen to them. They, they, they so catch our attention. The difficulty of the things that we experience, they, 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 it seems like they're right here, and they keep us from being able to see anything past right here. And we need to be able to remember in those moments, in the difficult times, in the unexpected times, who God is. Our situation does not tell us who God is. His word does, and we need to remember who God is. The enemy would love to use, to use sudden changes in your life to cause you to doubt who God is. He would love to use the suffering that you will experience in this life to try to convince you that God is not there for you, that he's not present, that he doesn't love you, that he's not merciful, that he does not care, that he is not good. And we must remember, if we're going to stand strong, if we're going to walk in the type of victory that Christ has for us as believers, we must remember we must lose an obsession with this accumulation of facts, and we must focus on what do I already know about God? Am I living that out? Do I truly believe it to be true? We must remember. It's difficult to remember. It's difficult when you lose your job. It's difficult when, you're, when in your life you haven't succeeded maybe in the way that you thought you have succeeded at this point. It's difficult when there's one thing you were trying to get into and maybe you don't get accepted into that. It's difficult maybe when your relationships aren't going the way that you thought they were. Maybe relationships are falling apart and you're doing everything you can to try to hold on to them, but they, they seem to be slipping right through your grasp. It's easy to forget who God is. It's easy to forget that he's our lover, that he's our provider as well. Or maybe by chance, hypothetically speaking, your church might have a meeting where you hear that in 30 days you got to be out of your building and you got no plan B. And you got no plan B lined up. We need to remember 
I need to remember that was, that was where I was. I remember I felt like God was just asking me, like, do you still trust me? Right? We had all these dreams, all these desires, all these goals for our church dating back about 10 years from now, way before we ever became a church when Midtown Two Notch was just a dream. And now it's like, God, we don't even have a place to meet. What are we going to do? If we, are people going to stay around? If we don't have somewhere, we might have to start meeting in the afternoons in another church. And I felt like, well, do you believe that stuff you preach? Man, you can forget something right after you say it. We must remember, for me, I had to go back through the process and remember, this was in 2012, we, we weren't even a church yet at this point, and we were trying to figure out what is it going to look like for us to be able to share Jesus with people uh, along the two-notch corridor here in Columbia. I get a phone call from a man named uh, James Bacardo, who was leading a Bible study at Benedict College, and he said, hey, man, my job is moving me to Greenville. You want to just take over the ministry that, that I'm leading? You can just have it. You can just run with it. I got students that come out to hear about Jesus. You can just share Jesus with them and maybe use that to help start your church plant. I need to remember. I need to remember the faithfulness of God that he just opened that door. that We didn't even do anything. He just opened that door for us. Obviously, we saw people come to know the Lord in and through uh, the, the Bible study and the life group that we had there at Benedict College. I think it was about five or six baptisms that we had from uh, Benedict students since that time. I need to remember even after that, as we were like, okay, this is great. We don't want to just be a, a, a church of college students. God, we don't, we don't really have anywhere to meet. And I got an email from a guy who used to be a, a member of the church that is our former landlord on Schoolhouse Road. And he was like, hey, I just thought you might be looking for a building. I think the people here at CCF will be willing to let you use their building. You want me to connect you to the elders and the leaders that are there? Yes. First of all, yes. Second of all, what? I need to remember that God has always guided our church, that God has always provided for our church, that anything that we've ever had came straight from his hand. Any good thing that we've ever had came directly from him. I need to be reminded of those times because when I remember those times, then I have to believe that if he was the one who was providing for us uh, five years ago, if he was the one who was providing for us three or four years ago, then he hasn't stopped providing for us now. It may, maybe it looks different. Maybe it's not the way I anticipated it being, but he hasn't stopped being who he is. I need to be reminded of that. Some of y'all already know this story. I, uh, so I called the lady who owns the place here, uh, and I was just like, hey, because we, we actually prayed about being able to meet in this space in 2016. This is two years ago, and I just called her up and was just like, hey, is it, you know, anything changed? Can we use the space? And she was like, we don't, uh, we don't rent it out. Uh, the building's for sale. I was like, we can't buy this building. It's too expensive. Uh, and she was like, and we don't rent it out on Sundays. And I was like, okay, cool. Just, just check him. Tremont gives me a phone call. I was like, hey, I think we can rent the building uh, over there. And I was like, nope, call, tried that. And he was like, well, let me, I think, I think we can work something out. Let's see if we can work something out. Goes in. I don't know what happens. The ladies just start saying stuff I've never heard her say before. Next thing you know, she was like, yeah, you can get every Sunday morning. Because God is still providing for us and he hadn't changed who he is. God doesn't change who he is. The question is, do we remember who he is? Do we remember who he is from the beginning? Over the last five years, he hasn't changed. If, if our mindset, if our expectation on him has changed, we have to understand it is because we are not remembering who he actually is. He's always provided for us. We need to remember this. We need to remember this and we need to tell it to our children and the generation after them that God has provided for us, just as Joshua said. Here's what we're going to do. Starting sometime within the next month or so, because we're, we're potentially transitioning one of our kid town rooms in about a month ago. So we'll probably wait uh, until that point. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a picture of one of our first Bible studies at Benedict College, and we're going to frame it. I ho hopefully we can get on one of those canvas things that looks really good. 
We're going to take a picture of us when we're on Schoolhouse Road, and we're going to put, a can put it in the canvas, and we're going to take a picture when we'll do it today. Couldn't get the photographer here in time. We're going to take a picture also of our time here, of one of our gatherings here, and we're going to put them up, and it will be a sign and a memorial to us, and it will be a sign and a memorial to our children. And anytime, and I want to say this for every kid town worker in here, anytime a child asks us, why is that here? We say, because the Lord has been faithful to us. Because when we needed a place to stay, when we needed a place to meet, to, to, to go on, to, to share his good news and share his gospel, he provided for us in a way that we didn't think that he was going to be able to do it. Why? Because we were already told no, that it wasn't going to be able to happen. But God provided for us five years ago. He provided for us four years ago, and he's providing for us still today. Anytime a child asks, and we will pass on the good news of his faithfulness to our children, to the next generation. We must remember Remembering bolsters us. It is a foundation for us. The ability to remember who God is is a, is a foundation for us to be able to stand on in times of difficulty, in times of trouble, in times when, when we, are, we are crippled maybe by our fear. Remembrance, memorials, as those three pictures will be. And if God sends us anywhere else, it'll be another picture on the wall somewhere else wherever he sends us that God is our provider, that he is our guide that he has never left us, that he is who he is. The question is, will we remember who he is? I believe if we don't set up reminders in our lives, we'll lose faith. I believe we'll lose hope. I believe we'll, leave, we'll lose the peace that comes from truly trusting in God. The world will feed us lie after lie about who our God is, and we'll eat them up, and we'll believe them if we don't remember. We don't have to turn now. I'll just reference it brie briefly. In Hebrews chapter 3, there's a call to the people of God to see to it that none of us fall away from God by us encouraging one another daily. He says, as long as it is called today, we are to encourage one another. As long as it is called today, every day that exists, the church, the people of God should be encouraging each other in the truth. He says, so that our hearts won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author of Hebrews says, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has this tendency to deceive us to tell us things that, that, that are not true. We are to encourage each other daily. So to some, to some degree, we are to serve as memorials for each other. We are to remind each other. You're going to be in a life group meeting, and you're going to be able to see in someone's uh, demeanor that they are doubting God's forgiveness for them. You are their memorial right there. You are their reminder of God's grace and forgiveness towards them. Right there in that, I mean, you are to remind them. The enemy wants them to get into self-condemnation. The enemy wants them to believe that they've just sinned way too much to continue walking with God, and you ought to be their reminder to them. We're all of us. We're going to be tempted sometimes to believe that we're alone. We need to be reminded that he's Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that his spirit lives inside of us, that for the Christian, we are objectively never truly alone. We need to be reminded of this. When we're tempted to sin and we begin to believe that we'll never see, we can never see any type of victory over this sin in our lives, we need to remember that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. That we look sin in the face and say, I'm dead to you. We look sin in the face and say, that's who I used to be. That's, who, that's how I used to live. That was me. That was my identity. That's not who I am anymore because I'm a new creation. Because God has made me new. We need to remember this. We need to remind ourselves, we need others in our lives, we need other Christians that we're in fellowship with to remind us of these truths. And we've been made new. That I, I literally am not who I was made to be. 
I know there's people in this room right now who there's certain sin struggles that we have that we've just given up. We just feel like there's no use fighting against this. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's, maybe it's pride. Maybe it's greed. Whatever it is, maybe it's not being able to practice self-control. Whatever it is, we need to remember. Remember, that's not who you are anymore. The God who sits on the throne and reigns calls you a saint, says you've been made clean, says you've been born again, says you've been made into a new creation. And we need to remember, remember, remembering is such a powerful thing. When you hear the whispers of the enemy, you can't go to God after what you did. You remember, no, I've been made the righteousness of God himself. That he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might become the very righteousness of God. That because of my union with Christ, that God has so placed his righteousness on me that the Bible says, I am the righteousness of God. Of course I can go before him. I am clothed in his righteousness. When we feel like all hope is lost by all the sin, by all the darkness, by all the brokenness, by all the injustice that we see in this world, we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that there's a king who sits on the throne. His throne is established today. It'll be established tomorrow. It'll be established forever. And he reigns and rules over everything. Even over every court and judicial system in this land, there is a higher court that sits and reigns and presides over all. And he's going to come back and he's going to make everything right. And we need to remember this because there's going to be times when all you can see is darkness. There's going to be times when all you can see is the sin and the brokenness and the hurt in ways that you've been mistreated and other people have been mistreated. It's going to blind you. And we need to remember, no, my God reigns. No, he decides what's going to happen at the end. And at the end, he's going to banish all sin and pain and darkness from his people when he comes back. And we're going to go on to be with him forever. The darkness does not win. The light comes in and dispels the darkness. We need to be reminded of these things. We're going to feel hopeless at times. We need to remember There's going to be times when we doubt God's love. There's going to be times that we might feel like, God, have you abandoned me? Like, are you are you still here? I can't imagine how you can still be here with me in this difficult situation that I am in. And we need to remember the cross of Jesus where he could have called the angels at any point in time to get him down off the cross. But he stayed every moment as a decision. And we know that if he did not abandon us in his worst hour, that he will not abandon us in our worst hour either. We need to remember who he is. We need to remember his death, his resurrection, that he is coming back. We need to set up reminders in our lives. I believe that's why Jesus said on his last night with his disciples, it seems to be a theme. We see this in in Joshua, in his last speech to the people of God. We see at the end of Peter's life, he's reminding the people of God of what they already know. And then Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, he takes the bread, he takes a cup, he breaks the bread, he passes it around. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And his last night with his disciples, and his last meal with his disciples, he says, do this because you need to remember. You need to remember that my body was broken. You need to remember that my blood was shed. And he says, I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine until we do it again in the kingdom. And so he's saying, you need to remember that one day I'm going to take you out of this world where all this suffering because of what I'm doing right here today. He says, you need to remember. As a practical step for us as those who are committed to remembering who God is, as we generally do. And this is part of the reason why we do communion almost every Sunday, because we need these constant reminders. 
He says, do this in remembrance of me. I, as our, as our pastor, well, I understand this is an extremely important thing for us to do. If you're new here, uh, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, we would love for you to partake in communion uh, along with us. If you're here and you're not uh, a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, this is one of the very few things in our church we would ask you not to do. Uh, this, this is really something that Jesus set up very specifically and in a sacred way uh, just for his disciples, just for his followers. So you can just remain in your seats. We won't look at you uh, funny or, or, or anything like that. So I'll pray for us and I'll kind of lead us into our time of communion together. Father, oh, you've been so good to us. There are many times we've been tempted to doubt you, tempted to believe you're not who you say you are. Father, the enemy is going to try to attack every one of us in this room with these lies to try to get us to believe something that is not true about us. But we also know that your Holy Spirit brings things back to our remembrance that we've learned of you. Would you make that true every day? Would you give us reminders through your spirit? Would you uh, commit our hearts to studying in your word? Would you drive us to your scriptures on a daily basis, meditating on your word and who you are? Will you help us to remember? Will you keep us from the mistakes of our first ancestors as they forgot the word that you, have given, you had given them, that they forgot who you were, that they forgot the promise and the commands that you had given them? Would you make us a people who remember? intentionally? Would you make us a people who in our everyday lives, personally, we, we set up these reminders for ourselves? Would you make us a church that consistently sets up reminders of ourselves, of your faithfulness, of your goodness, and of your love to us, God? Keep us from being prone, so prone to forget, God. We need you to do it. It's in Christ's name I pray.